22, are placed upon the floor and the rubber cloth is spread over them there is no need of fastening it to the slats, forming a shallow square vessel a yard wide, in this the bather stands and applies the water with a sponge from a basin or bowl on a stand placed conveniently near, there need be no danger of wetting the carpet, or spoiling the furniture, when the bath is finished, gather three corners of the rubber cloth in the left hand, Take the fourth corner in the right in such a way as to form a spot when lifted or held over the slot jar or bucket. The water may be poured out in a moment, when the cloth should be spread over the back of a chair to dry, and the slats unlocked and set away in a closet. The foot bath is frequently employed, as a means of causing diaphoresis, in colds, attacks of acute diseases, and also to draw the blood from the head or some internal organ. It is a powerful auxiliary in the treatment of those chronic diseases in which inflammation, congestion, and a feeble circulation are prominent symptoms. The water should be as hot as it can be borne and the temperature kept up by additions of hot water. It may be made stimulating by the addition of salt, mustard, ginger, or cayenne pepper. Be a side easy bath. A tub is so arranged that the patient can sit down in it while bathing. In this manner the lower part of the abdomen, hips, and upper part of the thighs are immersed in whatever fluid the bath is composed of. It is applicable in diseases of the pelvic organs, and may be hot, warm, cool, cold, or medicated, according to the effect desired. The bathtub should be large enough to permit a thorough rubbing and kneading of the diseased parts, and the patient may remain in it from 10 to 30 minutes. The clothing may be wholly or partially removed, as agreeable to the individual. A warm, sits bath is ineffective. Remedial adjunct in menstrual suppression and in painful menstruation. Gravel. Spasmodic and acute inflammatory affections generally. The cold. Sits bath is used as a tonic in cases of relaxed tissues of the pelvis. In debility of the urinogenital organs. In piles. Prolapses of the rectum. And in constipation. The head bath. A shallow basin contains the fluid for the bath. And the patient. Assuming a recumbent position. Immerses a portion of the head generally the back part, the temperature may be warm, cool, or cold, as desired, medicated baths are infusions of vegetable or other substances in water, they are sometimes applied with the sponge, though generally the patient is immersed, the temperature at which they are usually employed is that of the tepid bath, the nature and strength of the medication depends upon the character of the disease for which it is employed. The alkaline bath is prepared by dissolving half a pound of carbonate of soda in 60 gallons of water. It is full in those diseases in which the fluids of the body are abnormally acid, as in rheumatism. The acid bath is prepared by adding 2 pounds of muriatic or hydrochloric acid to 60 gallons of water. A much smaller quantity of the acid is sometimes used, and in some instances vinegar is substituted. Scott's acid bath is composed of nitromuriatic acid aqua regia and water. It should be prepared in a wooden tub, and a sufficient quantity of acid used to give the water a sour taste. It is extensively used in India as a remedy for disorders of the liver. The iodine bath is composed of the following ingredients. Tincture of iodine. 2 drams. Iodide of potassium. 4 drams. Water. 40 gallons. It should be prepared in a wooden tub. It reddens the skin. For children. A much weaker solution must be employed. Its use is generally restricted to scrofulous and tubercular affections. The sulfur bath is prepared by dissolving 8 ounces of sulfate of potassium and 2 ounces of dilute sulfuric acid in 60 gallons of water. The acid may be omitted. A sulfur vapor bath is often employed in cities where the necessary apparatus can be procured. 
it may be improvised by placing sulfur on a shovel over hot coals. The patient should be prepared as in the spirit vapor bath, and burning sulfur substituted for the liquor. The patient is then enveloped in the fumes of sulfurous oxide. Heating a mixture of sulfur and sulfuric acid, produces the same result. If the gas is inhaled in large quantities it causes irritation of the respiratory passages, and suffocation. It is therefore necessary that the coverings should be securely fastened at the neck, and that the room be one which can be quickly filled with pure air. This bath is used in cutaneous, rheumatic, and syphilitic disorders. Fomentations consist of the general or local application of woolen cloths run out of hot water. They should not be so light as to be ineffectual, nor so heavy as to be burdensome. They should not be wet enough to drip, nor applied so as to expose the body to the surrounding air. A fresh cloth should be ready for application before the first one is removed, and the change quickly effected. Fomentations are effectual in relieving congestion and inflammation. The wet sheet pack, as this remedial appliance will be frequently recommended in the pages following, its mode of application is here described. Take a pail half filled with cold water, gather together one end of a common cotton sheet, and immerse it, allowing it to remain while preparing the bed, which may be done as follows. Remove all the bedclothes except a coverlet and the pillows, then spread upon it, in the following order, two ordinary comforters, one woolen blanket, one woolen sheet, or two woolen sheets if a woolen blanket is not at hand, then wring out one half or two-thirds of the water from the wet sheet, spread it smoothly upon the blanket, and the patient being addressed, places himself on the sheet, with his arms extended, while an assistant wraps him closely and tightly with it, as quickly as possible. Each arm may be thus covered by the wet sheet, or may lie outside of it, and be covered by wet towels, prepared in the same manner as the sheet, then quickly and tightly cover with the blankets and comforters, tucking snugly from head to foot. The head should also be covered with a wet towel, and a bottle of warm water placed to the feet, or near enough to keep them warm. After the first shock of the chill is over, the pack is very pleasant and refreshing, and the patient should go to sleep, if possible. The ordinary time for a patient to remain in a pack is about 60 minutes. 30 or 40 minutes is sufficient. If he is in a feeble condition, never wring the sheet out of warm water, for one of its principal benefits comes from the vigorous reaction induced by its cold temperature. After remaining in the pack from 30 to 60 minutes, allow the patient to stand on his feet, if he is able, and have the whole surface of his body bathed, rub briskly, and dry with towels or by throwing over the body a dry sheet and then rubbing him. The dry sheet retains the bodily warmth and is more comfortable, but interferes with the completeness and vigor of the rubbing of the body. Be sure and establish full reaction, which may be known by the warmth of the surface. Frequently, when the patient is released from the pack, and is being bathed, rolls of scales, scurf, and skin debris come off, thus giving palpable evidence of the utility of the pack in freeing the myriads of pores of the skin of its feet matter. It is efficient in fevers, and for breaking up colds, and is a very valuable, remedial agent in most chronic diseases, assisting in removing causes which depress the bodily functions. Motion is a remedial agent. The stability of the planetary system depends upon the converted motion of its parts. So in the human system, motion is a fundamental principle which underlies every vital process. Health consists in normal, functional activity. The human system is the arena of various kinds of motions, both of fluids and of solids, and life and health depend upon these physiological movements. There are the movements incident to a respiration, the expansion and contraction of the walls of the chest, 
bringing the oxygen of the air into contact with the blood as it circulates through the lungs. Corresponding with the movements of the chest are the motions of the abdominal walls, which promote the functions of the organs of the abdominal cavity. There are motions of the heart and arteries, which urge the blood out to the extremities and diffuse it through every part of the system, and also motion of the blood in the capillaries, by which the blood is circulated through the tissues, that the latter may be built up from its nutritive constituents. Then there is the motion of the vital current in the veins returning towards the heart, and urged forward by the muscular and pump-like action of the chest and abdominal walls. The peristaltic motions of the stomach and bowels are downward digesting materials, exposing them successively to different solvents and aiding the absorption of nutritive matter. No less essential to life and health are numerous other minute operations or motions, on which vital power in all its manifestations of muscular and nervous energy depends. Many other motions are consequent upon decay, growth, and repair. Oxygen, carbonic acid, watery vapors, and other gaseous matter are constantly being exchanged between the system and atmosphere. Then, the human system being a complex, chemical laboratory, there are motions consequent upon chemical action, constantly going on within it. Muscular motion, under the direction of the will, is also absolutely necessary for the maintenance of good health. Animal heat and muscular and nervous power are dependent upon motions of the minutest particles composing the body. The body is composed of fluid and semi-fluid matter, permitting great freedom of motion. Health requires that there shall be a constant change of place, an active transmission of material to and from vital organs and parts, through the medium of blood vessels, as well as outside such vessels, that island motion of interstitial fluids, nature's mode of sustaining health, the act of transforming latent non-vital force which exists pent up in food, as heat is in coal, into vital energy, requires the simultaneous elimination from the system of a like amount of worn-out matter. Assimilation of nutritive materials is impossible, unless a like amount of matter be eliminated from the system. Muscular and nervous energy are dependent upon activities which cause waste. Not only is this true in a general way, but it is also true that the energy produced by the operations of the vital system has a strict relation to the wasting products that full energy is only attained by perfected waste, use, waste, and power, then, sustain definite and dependent or corresponding relations, since waste is as essential to health as is supply, without waste, disturbance is at once produced in the system similar to that resulting from the introduction of foreign matter, these disturbances constitute disease, the more obvious effects of lack of waste and elimination are mechanical. The circulation is loaded with a feet and useless matter, the vessels being thereby weakened and distended, and the circulation retarded. The capillaries become clogged and vital action is diminished. Local congestions, inflammations, effusions, morbid growths, and other pathological results follow. Deranged or suppressed action characterizes, and, indeed, constitutes all departures from health which we call disease. Suffering indicates action, but action which is perverted into wrong channels, or action in one part at the expense of motion in other parts, constituting a disturbance in the equilibrium of forces, from which the system suffers. Value our mechanical movements and manipulations for the treatment of chronic diseases, to correct and restore deranged movements, thereby producing normal, functional activity of every organ and part of the system, must therefore be the chief object of the physician. All remedies of whatever school or nature, imply motion, and depend for their efficacy upon their ability to excite motion in some one or more elements, organs, or parts of the system. 
while we do not wish to detract from the real merits of medicine as a curative agent, yet we must admit that the remedial power of motion, transmitted either manually or mechanically, is founded upon rational and physiological principles. All systems of medicine, however much they may differ superficially, propose, as the chief end to be attained by the administration of medicine, or by other treatment, that motions identical with physiological activity should be incited or promoted. How best to accomplish this result, and with least cost to vitality, is an important consideration, bearing in mind the conservation of forces, that energy or power is as indestructible as matter, that it may be changed into other forms but never lost. It is plain that mechanical force may be applied to the living system and transformed into vital energy, that chemical action, animal heat, and magnetism may represent in the system the mechanical force transmitted to the body, keeping in view the transformable nature of force, and the need that our systems have of auxiliary power in different departments. When normal activity is impaired by disease, we can readily understand how undoubted, curative effects result from either the manual or the mechanical administration of motion. Rubbing is a process universally employed by physicians of every school for the relief of a great diversity of distressing symptoms, is instinctively resorted to by sympathizers and attendants upon the sick, and constitutes one of the chief duties of the nurse, and civilized people resort to this process as their principal remedy in all forms of disease. The difficulty in administering motion as a remedial agent by manual effort, such as rubbing, kneading, oscillating, flexing, and extending the limbs lies in the impossibility of supplying the amount, intensity, and variety of movement required to make it most effective. The power of the arm and the strength of the operator are exhausted before the desired effect is produced. Inventive genius has at last overcome the obstacles to the successful and perfect administration of motion as a curative agent. We have now a series of machines propelled by mechanical power, by the use of which we rub, knead, manipulate, and apply in succession a great variety of movements to all parts of the body. These machines transmit motion to the body from inexhaustible sources, never tire, but are ever ready for new, remedial conquests. The movements administered by their use, while entirely under the control of the patient, are never disagreeable, and are far more rapid and intense than can possibly be given by the hands, by the application of short, quick movements of from 12 to 1500 vibrations a minute. Deep-seated organs and parts are reached, to which motion is transmitted and in which vital energy is thereby generated. The hands have not the power, by kneading, manipulating, or rubbing to impress the system except in a very mild degree, and deep-seated organs and parts are scarcely influenced by the comparatively slow movements thus administered. Among the most important, mechanical inventions devised for administering motion as a remedial agent, is one which has received the name of the manipulator. The manipulator, with this machine motion can be applied to any organ or part of the system, and intensity of the application regulated to a nicety. The rapidity of motion necessary to produce active exhilaration of any part of the body is easily secured by the use of the manipulator, but is far beyond the power of the hands. The degree of circulation given to the fluids, both inside and outside of the vessels, and of energy imparted to the organs and parts operated upon by the manipulator is also unapproachable by the application of manual power, effects upon the circulation and nutrition. The influence of motion on these functions is as follows, the contents of the blood vessels are moved onward by the pressure and motion transmitted by the manipulator, all backward movement of the blood being prevented by the valves of the veins and by the propelling power of the heart and arteries, 
fluids outside these vessels pass through their walls, to take the place of the stagnant blood that has been moved onward, other blood flows into the part, and thus active and healthy circulation is induced, and nutritive material, capable of affording vital support is also brought to refresh the local part, we have found mechanical movements especially effectual in paralysis, neuralgia, sleeplessness, and other nervous affections, in derangements of the liver, constipation, and dyspepsia, in displacements of the uterus, and congestion, and inflammation of the pelvic organs. For a complete description of the mechanical movements and the machinery employed in the treatment of diseases at the Invalids Hotel and Surgical Institute, the reader is referred to the appendix to this work. Chapter IV. Hygienic Treatment of the Sick. There are two essentials requisite to the successful treatment of the sick. 1. Medical Skill. 2. Good Nursing. The former is necessary in order that the condition of the patient be fully understood, and the proper means be employed to effect his recovery. The latter is essential, in order that all influences favoring the production and development of disease may be removed, the tendencies to a restoration be promoted by every possible means, and the directions of the physician be properly observed. Success in the treatment of the sick requires good nursing. Without it, the most skillful physicians fail to effect a cure, with it. The most unqualified may succeed, if certain hygienic agencies are essential to the maintenance of health. How much more necessary it is that they be employed in sickness, if certain conditions cause disease. How great the necessity is that such conditions be obviated and hygienic ones substituted. Notwithstanding the importance of good nursing, in the rural districts it is frequently difficult to find a professional nurse. Or, if one can be obtained. It is often impossible for the invalid to procure such services, on account of the expense which must necessarily be incurred. Hence, this office usually devolves upon some relative who is considered to be the best qualified for the position, or, as is often the case, necessity demands that the patient be left to a change of nurses. A woman is generally selected for this important position. Her soft hand and soothing voice, her kindly, sympathetic, and provident nature, together with her scrupulous cleanliness, render her man's equal, if not his superior, in the capacity of nurse. There are circumstances, however, in which the services of a man are indispensable, hence the necessity that all should be qualified to care for the sick. A nurse should be attentive to the requirements of physician and patient, for she sustains an intimate relation to both. She should observe the directions of the physician, and faithfully perform them. She should note all the symptoms of the patient and do everything in her power to promote comfort and recovery. She should anticipate the wishes, and not cause the patient to ask for everything which is desired, so far as practicable. Let the wishes be gratified. The senses of the sick often become morbidly acute, and those things which in health would pass unnoticed, in sickness are so magnified as to occasion annoyance and vexation. Sick persons are not all alike, and the peculiarities of each must be studied separately. The nurse must be kind but firm, and not yield to such whims of the patient as may be detrimental to a recovery, neither must she arouse dislike or anger by opposition, but endeavor to win the patient from all delusions, the feelings of the patient should never be trifled with, for idealities become realities, the nurse should possess an inexhaustible store of patients, disease affects the mind of the patient and fills it with strange delusions, the sick are often querulous, fretful, and unreasonable, and should be treated with kindness, forbearance, and sympathy. The nurse should always be cheerful, look on the bright side of every circumstance, animate them with encouragement, 
and inspire them with hope. Hope is one of the best of tonics. It stimulates the flagging, vital energies, and imparts new life to the weak and exhausted forces. Gloom, sadness, and despondency depress the vital forces and lead to death. We have seen patients rapidly sinking, who had given up all hope, and were quietly awaiting the coming of death, snatched, as it were, from its grasp, and restored to health, by words of cheer and encouragement. The nurse should possess moral principles, which alone can win the confidence of the patient. She should have judgment, circumspection, intelligence, forethought, alacrity, carefulness, and neatness. In a word she should exercise common sense. We deem it but justice to say a word in behalf of the nurse. She, too, is a human being, subject to disease, and, unless hygienic conditions be observed, will soon be stricken low by its presence. She must be relieved occasionally and get rest, or she cannot long withstand the combined influence of fatigue and disease. Her office is an arduous one at best, and the long, weary hours of night watching should be compensated by exercise in the open air, as well as by sleep during the day. Unless this be done, the system will become exhausted, and sleep will intrude itself upon her at the time when the greatest diligence is required for the welfare of the patient, when the vital powers are at their lowest ebb. She should be supplied with plenty of suitable food during the night, to sustain her and to serve as a safeguard against the invasion of disease. She should be treated with kindness and respect, else her disposition may become morose and reflect itself upon the patient, causing peevishness and despondency. The sick room should be as comfortable, cheerful, and pleasant, as circumstances will allow. Let the room be large and airy, and furnished with a stove, or better still, a fireplace. All articles of clothing and furniture, not necessary to the comfort of the patient, should be removed from the room, and in malignant or contagious diseases the carpets, even, should not be permitted to remain. The surroundings beget happiness or gloom, in proportion as they are pleasant or disagreeable. A tidy attendant, a few flowers and books, wonderfully enhance the cheerfulness of the room. Permit no unnecessary accumulation of bottles, or anything that can in any way render the room unpleasant. Medicines, drink, or nourishment should never be left uncovered in the sick room, since they quickly absorb the gaseous emanations from the patient, and become unfit for the purpose which they were intended to serve. Their presence gives the room an untidy appearance, suggestive of filth and slovenliness, and imparts to the patient a feeling of loathing and disgust for articles of diet. The bed should not be of feathers, on account of their undue warmth, which causes a sensation of languor throughout the system. A husk or sea grass mattress, or even a straw bed, covered with a cotton quilt, is far preferable. The bedding should be changed frequently. It is better that the bed should be away from the wall, so as to admit of greater freedom of movement about it. Pure air. The air in the sick room should be kept as pure as possible. That which is so necessary in health, is indispensable in sickness. The importance, therefore, of a perfect and free ventilation of the sick room cannot be too thoroughly impressed and yet to properly secure this end, may call forth a considerable amount of ingenuity on the part of the nurse. A window should be open, but the current of air must not be allowed to blow directly upon the patient. One window may be raised from the bottom and another lowered from the top. This will permit the entrance of pure air from without, and the exit of the vitiated air from within. The patient, if sufficiently covered in bed, is not liable to take cold from a proper ventilation of the room. Especially is this true. When the bodily temperature is raised by febrile or inflammatory affections, 
The temperature of the room is no indication of the purity of the air. It is a prevalent, but mistaken notion, that when a room is cold, the air must be pure. Cold air is as readily contaminated with impurities as warm air. Therefore, it is not sufficient that the room be kept cool, but the air should be frequently changed. During convalescence, great care is necessary to protect the patient from taking cold. Air which is admitted into the sick room should not be contaminated by passing over foul drains, privies, or other sources of infection, since, instead of invigorating, it depresses the physical forces and generates disease. Light is as necessary to health as is pure air. Vanish either for any continuous period of time, and serious results follow. The strong, robust man, when deprived of light, soon degenerates into a feeble, sickly being, and finally dies. According to the investigations of the Massachusetts Medical Society, it was found that absence of sunlight, together with moisture, not only favor the development of tubercular consumption, but act as an exciting cause. It is well known that persons living in shaded dwellings often suffer from forms of disease which resist all treatment until proper admission of light is secured. The physician to the Emperor of Russia found upon examination that patients confined in well-lighted wards were four times as liable to recover as were those in poorly lighted rooms. Children reared away from the sunlight are apt to be deformed and idiotic, while those partially deformed have been restored by being admitted to the light. Patients sometimes wish to have their rooms darkened, because the light is painful to their weak and sensitive eyes. It is far better to shade the eyes and admit the sunlight into the room, since its rays cause chemical changes to take place, which favor the return of health. Many invalids can ascribe their recovery to the influence of a sun bath. There are, however, conditions in which the patients should be screened from the light. In such cases a little arrangement of the curtains or shutters will accomplish all that is to be desired. Patients convalescing from acute, or suffering from chronic diseases, should receive the influence of light in the open air, and be in it several hours every day. Light and pure air stimulate a healthful development, induce cheerfulness, hope and recovery, while darkness begets gloom, sadness, despondency, disease, and ultimately death. Warmth is essential to the well-being of the patient, and it is necessary that a proper temperature be maintained in the room, except in very warm weather. A little fire should be kept in the room, and at the same time fresh air should be admitted from without, and a uniform temperature thus preserved. This arrangement is especially necessary in localities where great variations in temperature are experienced during the day and night. The normal temperature of the body ranges from 98 degrees to 99 degrees far. The minimum occurs from 2 to 6 a.m., the maximum. From 1 to 6 p.m. the deviation of a few degrees from the standard indicates disease, and the greater the deviation, the greater is its severity. During the early stages of acute diseases, the animal heat is generally increased and should be allayed by bathing, and cooling or acidulated drinks. In the latter stages, the temperature becomes diminished and the condition of the system is favorable to congestions, which are most likely to occur between the hours of 2 and 6 a.m. when the vital powers are lowest. The patient then becomes feeble, his extremities grow cold, and he has what is termed a sinking spell, and perhaps dies. It is during these hours that additional covering, the application of hot bricks to the feet, and bottles of hot water to the limbs and body, friction upon the surface, stimulating drinks, and increased vigilance on the part of the nurse will often save the patient's life. But, unfortunately, at these hours the nurse is apt to get sleepy and inattentive, the demands of the patient go unheeded, 
and a sacrifice of life is the result. Persons suffering from chronic diseases, or those in feeble health, should preserve their vital energies by dressing warmly, by wearing flannels next to the skin, and by carefully protecting the feet from cold and moisture. Cleanliness cannot be too thoroughly impressed upon the minds of those who have the care of the sick. Filthiness is productive of disease and favorable to its development. Bathing at least once a day, with pure, soft water and toilet soap, is strongly urged, and as this is designed for cleanliness, the temperature of the bath should be made agreeable to the patient. The clothing and bedding of the patient in acute diseases, should be changed frequently and thoroughly aired, if not washed, as soon as removed. These articles should be taken from the room, replaced by others well aired and warmed. The hands and face of the patient should be bathed frequently, the hair combed, the teeth brushed, the nails cleaned, the lips moistened, and everything about him kept clean and tidy. These observances, although in themselves trifling, promote comfort and cheerfulness, and contribute largely to the recovery of the sick. All excretions from the patient should be buried and not committed to privies to communicate disease to those who frequent them. The diet contains a very important relation to health. During the process of acute disease, the appetite is generally much impaired, if not entirely absent. It should then be the study of the nurse to devise such articles of nourishment as will be acceptable to the patient and suitable to the condition. The food should be light, nutritious, and easy of digestion. Each individual disease requires a diet adapted to its peculiarities. Those of an inflammatory character require an instimulating diet, as gruel, barley water, toast, etc., an exhausted or enfeebled condition of the brain, and attended by irritability, demands a stimulating diet, as beef, eggs, fish, graham bread, oysters, etc., in wasting diseases, in which the temperature of the system is low, beef, fatty substances, rich milk, sweet cream and other carbonaceous articles of diet are recommended. In the various forms of chronic ailments, the diet must be varied according to the nature of the disease and the peculiarities of the patient. Deranged digestion is generally an accompaniment of chronic disease. A return to normal digestion should be encouraged by selecting appropriate articles of food, paying due regard to its quantity and quality, as well as to the manner and time of eating, the appearance of food, and the